What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Nick Carter is a partner at Castle Island Ventures and a co-founder of CoinMetrics. In this conversation, we discuss Bitcoin, mining, Ethereum, smart contract platforms, Castle Island Ventures, CoinMetrics, geopolitical issues, and then we roll the flood dice. I really enjoyed this conversation with Nick, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Gemini. Gemini is a leading regulated cryptocurrency exchange, wallet, and custodian that makes it simple and secure to buy, sell, store, and earn Bitcoin, Ether, and over 40 other cryptocurrencies. They offer industry-leading security, insurance, and uptime. Gemini is the go-to trusted platform for beginner and sophisticated investors alike. You can open a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com slash and get $20 of Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within the first 30 days. Again, open a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com slash and get $20 of Bitcoin after you trade your first $100 or more within 30 days. Next up is Crypto.com. Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell 100 plus cryptocurrencies. They currently have over 10 million users as well. The Crypto.com Visa card gives you up to 8% back instantly and 100% back on Spotify and Netflix. Also, Crypto.com lets you earn very high rates of return on Bitcoin and other types of stable coins. You can get $25 when you download the Crypto.com app using code POM. Again, go click on the link in the description, download the app, and they'll give you 25 bucks. Go check it out, Crypto.com. Not only do they have a great username and URL, but also that is the place where mass adoption is occurring. All right, let's get in this episode with Nick. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, can we just get the news out of the way so everyone knows? Um, oh, yeah. I moved to Miami. Let's go! <laughs> Let's go! Yeah. Nick Carter is breaking now. News. It, it, was that breaking news? <laughs> that was breaking is, news. Nobody knew this before. This is the worldwide premiere. Oh, so breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> On the this, best business this, show. That's why people will tune in. Exclusive. <laughs> uh, is Nick Carter is now a Miami resident. He is living in Brickell. Here, scoot over a little bit so you can... Uh, Getting the uh, okay, thing there, we'll, we we'll help you there. I mean, look, if you're gonna make big news like that, we gotta right make sure. Now, I'm still getting used to t- live TV. Very <laughs> special. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Nick is now a resident of Miami. Um, let's. Well, first of all, why did you move to Miami? Let's start there. There's a constellations of reasons. <laughs> um, the number one reason, though, has to be tone at the top. Governments. Okay. You know, I moved from Massachusetts and Massachusetts, despite having a vibrant crypto industry, uh, after all, our fund is based there, um, has a very antagonistic relationship from a policymaker perspective with crypto. Um, Unfortunately, Elizabeth Warren, senator, is not a fan. Uh, My local representative in Massachusetts, Stephen Lynch, also not a fan. Contrast that with Miami, with Florida. You have the mayor Suarez here, who's an enormous supporter. Um, and that stuff makes a difference to me. And I'm a highly mobile person. I can live at, you know, everything is remote for me. Fund, startup, everything completely remote. And so, you know, that to me is number one thing. I just want to live somewhere where as a capitalist, as a crypto person, I'm embraced and supported by the local uh, policymakers. And, you know, honestly, that was a big part of the decision. When did you make the decision? Probably around six months ago. Yeah. So you yeah. knew that you were going to do this for a while. 
Yeah. Um, the, it took me a while to sort of actually, you know, effectuate it, but, uh, I'm here now. This is like day three already. I'm on, you know, local TV studio, Palm, <laughs> Palm TV. You guys suck me you in. in. Here I am. All right. Uh, Bitcoin right now is very interesting place. You, uh, I was telling my brothers, were like the voice of reason throughout all of the ESG mining, China ban of mining. Uh, pretty much any time that somebody in the mainstream media said something stupid, it was like, ugh, I gotta go write another rebuttal. And you were just cranking them out. How do you evaluate where we are right now with mining specifically? Honestly, I think we're in an extremely good place okay. as far as mining is concerned. Um, a lot of people were upset with Musk, myself included, for uh, what he had to say about Bitcoin mining. But for better, for worse, his comments catalyzed a reaction among uh, the mining community, specifically in Bitcoin. Um, and we've seen this enormous reaction to create nonprofits, associations, just groups of individuals that uh, are engaging in disclosure regarding what kind of energy they're using. Um, we've also seen the exogenous shock, which was the Chinese hash rate migration. We couldn't plan for that, but that just so happened to have enormously positive effects for the mining space. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, in the space of a year, the Bitcoin mining industry has gone from this completely opaque, sort of unaccountable, largely Chinese industry mined with significant amounts of coal to almost, uh, you know, a strongly North American American industry. I mean, not not exclusively, but you know, by the end of the year, I wouldn't be surprised to see fifty percent of hash rate in the U.S. or Canada. That wouldn't shock me at all. Right now, it's probably 40 percent, um, and that hash rate is much more transparent about its operations. Not only that, these miners are increasingly publicly traded. We're seeing new listings all the time. We're seeing SPACs, IPOs all the time for these miners. Um, the SEC has made it clear they consider ESG to be, you know, an important part of U.S. capital markets. Again, for better or for worse, the miners are responding to that, uh, and they're seeking out these renewable sources of energy, um, not just, you know, to appease, um, you know, uh, critics in the press or anything like that, but also because that's actually what shareholders are looking for. Uh, and so there's just all these pressures that are pushing mining in sort of like really favorable direction. When you think of the mining moving to the U.S., I agree with you. I, I don't know exact numbers. If it's going to be 45, 50, 55 percent, whatever. It's going to be much more than it is today, right? Uh, let's say in North America. Are there downsides to that? Like there, like we would always point and say, oh, all this hash rate in China, that's bad. And I think a lot of people, one would point to centralization in a geographic region and then two, to the authoritarian type government and you know, unpredictable. We don't know what they're going to do. If we bring it to the North America and still have, let's say, majority, are we as concerned or no, because the government ideally is a little bit uh, different in terms of democratic rule and, and uh, a little bit more predictable? Well, there's just no risk that the government in the U.S. goes berserk and uh, attacks the property rights of miners. Um, we have a you know patchwork, a federal system where the states make policy with regards to mining. So you're not going to get a homogenous policy unless there's some, you know, significant legislative change or something like that. But that, you know, there's a process associated with that. So um, the U.S. is just not going to have this institutional environment where mining is prohibited overnight or nationalized. You know, that was something I was always concerned about with China. Um, it's just a less sort of fragile system here. It's, it, you know, you're just going to get more heterogeneity in, in terms of policy. Um, of course, if the U.S. becomes the by far the dominant hub, 
the question then can validly be posed, is this actually an improvement over uh, mining, you know, being largely concentrated in China? Uh, but, you know, I, I think, again, I would just look to the states. The states are the ones that generally make policy around mining. So we have, you know, we don't have one U.S. policy for mining. We have like 50 policies. What's your take on ESG, OFAC compliant blocks, like all, all of what I'll call uh, potentially virtue signaling attempts that were made by miners versus the things that actually could be highly impactful? Do you have a framework as to like, hey, here's the things that we should be focused on that actually make a difference versus the things that sound good but but aren't? Or do you think we still need the free market to kind of play this out before we have answers? Well, there's a number of things miners can do to sort of improve their optics. Um, you know, one is procuring renewable energy, obviously. Uh, two would be buying renew renewable energy credits. Um, you know, I, I you know I, I don't think anybody should be mandating that, but that exists as an option if miners want to decarbonize, right? And you know, some miners are taking advantage of that. Um, you know, I, I don't strictly want all mining to be like lit and transparent and, um, you know, accountable to the state. Like, I think it's important. And a lot of good Bitcoiners have been making this point. We need a balance of, um, you know, off grid mining that's like a little harder to triangulate. And then, you know, some large industrial miners that will be, you know, much more transparent. Um, because if every, you know, all, every hash derived from a publicly traded corporation, they would be kind of exposed to you know those political wins, and we don't necessarily want that for Bitcoin. Um, so you know I think long term where this is going to settle is you're going to have some large you know mining conglomerates that are publicly traded and are pretty transparent, clear about all their energy and things like that, um, and maybe even have these policies about block filtering. Although we've seen, um, I think Marathon was the one that proposed that they moved away from that mm -hmm. after a lot of critique. Um, but I think it's important we have this ecosystem of sort of cowboy, you know, wildcat miners that are sort of off grid um, and that aren't, you know, necessarily traded on public markets, aren't as exposed to the state. Yeah. One of the things that um, came up in that in marathon, I think, was kind of in the uh, crossfire of this was they want to do these OFAC blocks. Uh, they thought that there was going to be some premium uh, assigned to the Bitcoin that came out of the, uh, those blocks versus, let's say, other Bitcoin. It sounds like the institutional market put no premium from an economic standpoint on the Bitcoin. Uh, we talked yesterday to Adam back, and one of the questions I asked him was like, what if some of the Satoshi coins moved? Would people put a premium on those coins as like a historical artifact, right? Or, or, or some level of importance. And really what it's getting at is like, forget OFAC, forget Satoshi, like, will we ever see premium assigned to coins? Or do you think that we do have like true fungibility where uh, it's a nice theoretical, we're just never gonna see it in, in the economics? It's a great question. It's one of those big debates. You know, I actually go back and forth on whether virgin coins exist and are demanded by the market. Um, I initially thought they might be a thing, and then I sort of reversed myself. And now I've talked to a few miners that tell me, actually, there are like people out there that ask for virgin coins. Um, are they willing to pay more, or we're not sure yet? It's not clear to me. It's not clear to me. Uh, I've just heard whispers that actually there there is some demand for virgin coins. Uh, but, you know, the catch is... Whenever you mine a block, there's fees, right? And the fees are not newly created like the issuance, the Coinbase output is. The fees are deriving from the transaction, so you're processing the block. So the fees taint, you know, if you have this idea of, you know, um, existing coins being full of taint, the fees would introduce taint into the miner Coinbase, and they're all mingled together, right? There's no distinction uh, in the protocol between uh, fees and issuance uh, from the miner's perspective. So 
um, you would have to forsake all the fees in a block if you wanted a truly virginal coin. Uh, and that's, you know, as the as the minor revenue becomes more fee dominated, you're not going to want to um, eliminate that fee revenue. So the ver- the prospects for virgin coins, I think, are really, really challenging. Do we know what the percentage breakdown in a block is right now? Between um, minor it, revenue, like true mining in the block versus the transactions? Around 5% fees and everything else is issuance. So it's pretty yeah. low right now. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's low, but it's higher than I think some people understand it to be right it's, i think yeah. a lot of people think it's you know basis points but and it's five percent it's been uh, up to kind of 20 percent for certain periods historically and you know as the issuance drops off and in theory as block space becomes a more of a valuable commodity fees are eventually going to become 100 percent yeah revenue talk to me about the lightning network liquid these like side chains or second layers like how do you view where we are with the development of uh that type of infrastructure and is this something where like now we're starting to see okay this is real this is working and and, um we can kind of see substance behind the excitement or do you think we still have a long way to go to get to the point where you could be like all right this is going to work well when we raised our first fund in 2018 we looked at lightning we thought to ourselves is it investable at that time, we figured that it would be really challenging to invest in Lightning because it just hadn't really reached a stage of maturity where we saw developers able to hack on it and build really interesting experiences uh, in a short period of time. The infrastructure, the plumbing was just you know challenging. As of today, it's a little different. Um, we backed you know a bunch of Lightning startups. Um, Lightning, to me, looks to be reaching a state of maturity where it's actually usable not just for microtransactions or streaming payments, but for um, other kind of like Web3 use cases um, where it's sort of this novel sort of internet architecture, not even strictly for payments. Um, And so like Lightning Network as of today is kind of, I think, reaching actually an inflection point. And if you look at the value locked on Lightning, it's had this inflection as well. And I don't know exactly what to ascribe that to, but... Uh, the network itself is 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 uh, you know I'm seeing a vast proliferation in the in the sort of set of use cases that we see on it today. Yeah, and speaking, of, you're talking about like the wildcat miners, those that are kind of off grid, no one really knows about, but they're still able to uh, you know participate. It seems like all of the public metrics with the public nodes that's gone parabolic, but we have to remember that there's also kind of these wildcat nodes, right, that are basically out there that we don't have an understanding how big they are, how much capacity is there, et cetera. Yeah, and you don't necessarily want the entire payments network to be transparent. I mean, payment trend, uh, opacity is a pretty important feature of, of a functioning system. So um, it's it, you know it's kind of funny because you know obviously I love on-chain data and blockchain analytics, but you do have to surrender some of that um, as these networks become you know more second layer and more private. For those that don't know, talk to me about Castle Island. Talk to me about Coin Metrics. Kind of what is the investment thesis, and then any progress on uh, on Coin Metrics. So Castle Island, we've been around for about three years. Uh, we're still Boston based. Uh, we've grown the firm recently. Actually, I'm the only member down in Miami, so I will be our Miami attache. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, partly just, you just need a yacht. Joe's got three yachts. He told us today. So you're I'll lend to you one. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've been doing more deals in Latin America and well, actually we have three portfolio companies here in Miami right now. So, um, you know, that wasn't the case six months ago. So, um, there's an interesting like crypto nexus here as you guys are undoubtedly aware. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, our general thesis is financial infrastructure is our bread and butter. That's what we know best as it pertains to public blockchains. 
Uh, we're in co-investors in a number of startups. Um, and that's that's what we do effectively. And uh, we've been broadening our scope recently. We've been looking into alternative internet topologies, less censorable uh, internet architecture, social media, things like that. Uh, and so, you know, things that are adjacent to public blockchains. But the main thing we do is financial infrastructure on public blockchains, making the asset class something that could actually extend to, you know, billions of people. I think everyone knows you you and uh, Kassan for uh, what I'll call it the Bitcoin investments, right? Those are the ones that most people know. They're the ones they've seen you talk about, et cetera. What is like the most extreme on the other end outside? Like, I, I think uh, we were laughing this morning at the Supreme being uh, uh, controversy, all this stuff. Like when you think about the portfolio, what percent is Bitcoin versus like other things? It doesn't have to be other blockchains, it doesn't have to be other coins, but just like anything else that isn't Bitcoin only. Yeah, I mean, we we have a handful of uh, explicitly Bitcoin only startups in our portfolio. You know, Casa and River would be good examples, some of the Lightning startups. Um, but generally, we've taken the position that we're not going to dictate to the entrepreneurs, to the founders, which protocol to use. Um, and you know, many of them, if not most of them, are you know cross protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, whether it's using stable coins, using smart contract platform. Um, you know, so a lot of these are sort of brokerages, exchanges, custodians. For those kind of business models, you're going to want to support what the market is, you know, telling you is important. Uh, and so they'll be cross protocol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're not uh, handing down, you know, these dictates in terms of, oh, you, you absolutely have to use this or that. Um, from the perspective of VC, you just have to be, I think, more of a more open minded about protocols. I wrote a piece recently that talked about like monetary maximalism and then basically like t- technology competition. And I think this is kind of what you're getting at, which is there's almost uh, in money, a lack of technological superiority. Like the US dollar system is not necessarily the most technologically advanced, but it has the social consensus. Like we all agree that it has value, we use it, et cetera. And so you arrive at like some level of maximalism in a single currency where you're paid, you save, you invest in that, pay your taxes, whatever. But the technology maximalism is almost historically has never worked, right? Whether it's iOS, uh, whether it would be Python, whether it would be any of this stuff, like there is going to be this market where NFT is like a a good example, I think, where like people started out on one blockchain and then some people split off and said, hey, we're gonna go do it on a dedicated use case specific blockchain. Some people said, hey, we're gonna go do it on a layer two. Some said, hey, we're gonna go on another smart contract platform. Like it just feels like it got very fragmented very quickly as people pursued what ultimately was like a technological, you know, feature. Yeah, it, it's so interesting to see. You're right. Uh, NFTs were first issued on Bitcoin, um, and then you know, then you had more growth on Ethereum, and then now it's fragmented across blockchains like Flow, these all twos on top of Ethereum, Tezos, other smart contract. You know, virtually any blockchain can incorporate NFTs because you're basically just creating a serial code that uh, you know uh, references some external data, um, and so. Now I think you're gonna have NFT platforms that are cross-chain just straddling a bunch of blockchains. And you know, maybe even from the user's perspective, you won't know mm-hmm. where it's uh, you know, where the registry is, where you know does it matter? Large. Like this is one of the big questions, I think, is everyone talks about decentralization. Like I think of the world as people think of Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain, whatever you want to call this industry, uh, as Bitcoin was where it originated. So decentralization was the most important thing. It was put out there as uh, being incredibly important, peer-to-peer electronic cash, et cetera. Now with like, let's take Ethereum, there was, okay, we're gonna add this composability, we're gonna like make it better, all this stuff. 
But then like Binance Smart Chain came out of nowhere and was just like, oh, we're just gonna make it fully centralized. Like we're gonna go for efficiency, low cost, high throughput, like who cares? And not everyone moved, but like some people moved. And then you start to see this with other blockchains, et cetera. And you almost get to the point of like, how important is decentralization in some of these systems versus they should just pursue the efficient kind of hierarchical structure that allows for high throughput, low fees, and like decentralization doesn't really matter to the use case. Yeah, I, I remember uh, Larry Sukunik wrote this, uh, a good friend of mine wrote this great piece years ago about uh, platform-grade decentralization, sovereign-grade decentralization, if I'm remembering. And he couched it in terms of your adversary. So if your adversary is the state, which is the case with money, you know, we're competing with Fedwire and the dollar system when it comes to a base monetary asset, um, you know, decentralization is all important. When it comes to creating a new architecture for exchanging, uh, you know, more, can maybe more trivial digital value or something that references outside concepts, so something that's not fully endogenous, um, you know, like NFTs, for instance, you know, the most popular platforms we're seeing, are, uh, like Flow is, a, is uh, you know, an NFT-specific platform, uh, certainly makes decentralization trade-offs, like running a node is, is much more difficult. Um, I think a lot of people kind of took the Bitcoin ideology in terms of uh, cheap node operation and tried to extend it to other novel blockchains without realizing that these blockchains weren't pursuing the same goals as Bitcoin remotely. Um, and it doesn't necessarily make them invalid. Um, it just means that they're attempting something which is uh, just radically different uh, in terms of its goals. Um, I, that said, I think there's a lot of fragility in some of these blockchains that have very expensive nodes because expensive nodes means few nodes. Mm -hmm. Few nodes means you're exposed to any kind of legal challenge, uh, potentially political uh, difficulties. Like, I'm not going to call any blockchains out, uh, but uh, you won't. I, yeah, I Dumb point, dog dare you. <laughs> one interesting thing is at uh, Coin Metrics, we run, you know, like, I don't know, dozens of blockchains. So I periodically ask my engineers, I'm like, which nodes are the hardest to run? And they're like, oh, this one and that one and this one and that one. And like, we can't get them online or like they're falling over all the time. To me, that like that's information the market probably isn't internalizing. Mm -hmm. uh, it just expresses itself in the form of fragility, and it builds up and it builds up, and then eventually something catastrophic happens where we learn that you know there's only seven nodes and you know the all-in-one data center, uh, all-in-one jurisdiction, or something like that. Um, we haven't really seen those validator level failures yet, although blockchains do stop all the time. It's just people don't notice it. Uh, they'll seize up and halt and you know, have to get restarted. That doesn't really get reported. Uh, so I would caution people that for some of these really aggressive smart contract blockchains where they're pushing tons of data through the system, um, some of these failures are likely to emerge at some point. I want to kind of go through the ecosystem a little bit and ask you about certain things, and then we'll play a FUD dice for a little bit. But um, Ethereum has this new uh, update, right, in terms of the monetary policy and, and the burning mechanism, et cetera. What is your understanding or kind of read as to positive, negative? Are you neutral? How do you think this affects Ethereum moving forward? So I got completely savage day one uh, on Twitter when I talked about EIP-1559 actually increasing fee levels. Apparently, that was uh, something that had been forecasted. So uh, people didn't like that I, I pointed that out. Um, but uh, 
my was it right uh yeah yeah so it's like fees on ethereum are like i would say structurally higher now mm -hmm. and really what eip 1559 did was cut out the floor in terms of fees so um when you know you'd have periods on ethereum of downtime where it would get pretty cheap to transact uh the new eip kind of just eliminated that and set a, a like a higher threshold minimum threshold to sort of transact i'm vastly oversimplifying uh, but generally, my read is that um, it's sort of consistently like pretty pricey to transact. Um, of course, you got, you know, the Ethereum community got this great thing in return, which is burning a significant share of all the fees that, you know, would be paid to miners. Miners are making as much revenue now as they were before. And also, um, I think a majority of those fees are being burned. Mm -hmm. So think about what that means from a user perspective. So that's good and bad. On the one hand, you can make this argument, hey, if we actually reduce the issuance, Ethereum can become deflationary from a monetary perspective. It's a great story to tell investors. Um, the negative thing, and this is something I try to communicate, and I'm trying to be fair and balanced here, is um, it, it's a form of rent extraction, right? So initially, the miners, all of the fees were going to pay miners for their service of keeping the block space linear and you know, doing the thing that miners do. Now, a you know, good portion of the fees associated with using Ethereum just go to effectively juicing the price of Ethereum, right, by, uh, you know, potentially reducing the supply. Uh, and so that really benefits token holders at the expense of users of the blockchain. And now, a lot of Ethereums will say to me, like, oh, well, token holders are users, so it's all the same thing. But if you expect Ethereum to mature and you have a lot of firms that hold Ethereum just for working capital perspective, just to utilize the blockchain, transact on it, without wanting to have financial exposure to Ether, those firms are going to feel disempowered because you know uh, the Ethereum governance process increased the costs of using Ethereum and funneled that sort of return into the token price. And so now what you have, thanks to the CIP, is like these two groups these stakeholder groups are at odds with each other. You, you know, people that are long-term, uh, you know, effectively speculators, not to use that pejoratively on the token price, and then people. And I think this is the most important demographic that you want to sort of uh, curry favor with. You want to sort of coddle them. Is the people that use and hold Ethereum as working capital, but that latter group is a little disempowered by the change, in my view. So that's a, uh, you know, I'm certainly not known to be like you know deeply part of the ethereum community so uh, this wasn't received very well when i said it when you think about this because it's an interesting um framework that you're using where token holders can see price go up which people on twitter etc like they love that idea right so they're gonna applaud you for uh, for that thought process but you're basically saying yes but the people who are using this this may actually be a negative impact and so is it fair to say that your analysis is this could be short-term good because price goes up, but actually long-term sustainability over a 10-year period or something could put more stress or, or kind of be bigger obstacles or more complexity moving forward because of the change? Yeah, I think there could well be a reckoning where it's people begin to understand that these somewhat opaque governance processes are not being, uh, you know, they're not necessarily weighing the interests of all stakeholders uh, equally. Uh, and there could well be a moment where 
people realize, wow, we turned up the rent extraction dial too high mm -hmm. and we got to turn it back now. Mm -hmm. I think that's completely plausible. I don't think people are really ready to hear that message. Maybe fees need to be really high for a long time and these other smart contract competitors start to do really, really well, which we've seen. That's happened in the last week or so. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, appreciating relative to Ethereum. Uh, but yeah, I think there could be a reckoning over the unanticipated impacts of tweaking things that look like technical things, but they're actually political changes. So my view of this has been, and I want to see if you want to agree or, or disagree, and then two, also like how you think this will play moving forward is uh, there was Bitcoin. People tried to do things with it. They were unhappy with the technical kind of architecture and, and how easy it would be. They went and they built Ethereum. Uh, for the, all intents and purposes, they were able to accomplish the composability that they were looking for that led to DeFi and many of these other things. Um, but then they started to hit kind of a limiting wall. And so flow you know, is, is one example. But you've also had the Binance Smart Chains of the world. You've got things like Solana, et cetera, that are now starting to pop up. And it almost feels like to some degree, uh, there's a lot more technical competition among the smart contract platforms, let's say Bitcoin and something else that's competing from a monetary standpoint. And so if that is true, and you can agree or disagree with it, is this something where the old, like what is MySpace, what is Facebook, what is the next social network, whatever, that is more likely to play out along the smart contract technical competition like landscape, not claiming any one of them is any one of those companies, you know, equivalent, but just saying like, there is going to be ones that find success. There's going to be ones that disrupt. There's always going to be new challengers. And like, you're going to constantly have to iterate and innovate your way to stay at the front of the pack to hold uh, both the one, the economic holders, but also to the users of the platform, because it seems like Bitcoin is, it either works or it doesn't, but no one's really competing for that, like decentralized programmatic, you know, monetary policy, et cetera. And so it's kind of of one or zero here, it doesn't feel that way when you talk about the smart contract platforms. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remotely think of these things in terms of the analogies to uh, social networks. Um, I, you know, if you think about the key decisions that are made, whether it's changes to Bitcoin, I mean, the block size change, as I said with EIP 1559, these look like technical changes, but really they are pertain to governance and they pertain to you know, who are the winners and losers in these systems? Who are the entities that can extract rent from being proximate to the protocol? And who are the entities that are being effectively harvested by the protocol elites? Not to, you know, kind of engage in fear mongering or anything, but that is at the core of any real major change that happens in any blockchain is um, who are we empowering by virtue of our changes to the protocol and who are we disempowering? Uh, and oftentimes developers don't acknowledge that they're engaged in politics. They think they're engaged in engineering, but it's politics because there's billions of dollars on the line. How much are they influenced, in your opinion, by the non-engineering community. So whether it's people on Twitter, whether it's large asset managers, whether it's folks like they've taken the Ethereum system uh, consensus, if you look at Solana, uh, FTX and that crowd, like how much of it's coming from the people who aren't actually writing the code versus do you think these are our technical decisions that are being made by the engineers and they just have ramifications in the political uh, analysis? Well, it's hard to quantify. I mean, it depends on the blockchain, but you have this tyranny of structurelessness, right? Where um, in a non-formalized system, which is the governance of most blockchains, it's not formalized, um, power still exists, it's just veiled, it's opaque. So it's not clear who has power. 
And then in, in, in a highly technocratic system, it's a lot of engineers that, uh, you know, take up this role as, you know, policymakers, people that can actually influence the governance of the system. I would say that's what I mostly perceive is these like backdoor, um, you know, pretty opaque, like pretty hard to understand as a regular person, uh, you know, settings where decisions are made. And, uh, you know, it's largely technocrats, like, you know, effectively very technical uh, engineers that are making political decisions. Um, of course, you do occasionally have, you know, influence uh, and, and it's getting more blurred now as you have more interest groups and you have, you know, more large corporates that try and inject themselves into, you know, these governance conversations uh, like, you know, New York Agreement, things like that. Uh, and you also have more sponsorship of core devs, which muddies the waters. But I would say, you know, t- like historically, it's largely technocratic and also hard for an outsider to sort of get a handle on. When you think about other areas you guys are interested in, so you've got kind of the Bitcoin or monetary uh, analysis, uh, you've got smart contract platforms and kind of public blockchains. Are you guys doing anything in NFTs? I saw that you sold an NFT to Von Miller by accident. <laughs> yeah, that was such a funny story. <laughs> Dude, t- tell us a story real quick and then talk NFT. So I, yeah, you know, like a year ago, I complained on Twitter that no one ever sends me uh, nice, comfy startup T-shirts. Like I, I think I have fifty T-shirts from startups. I'm sure you guys too, too. And uh, OpenSea uh, sent me a T-shirt and they sent me a card with a T-shirt and the card had, a, a, you know, it was clearly a private key scribbled on it. And I, I took one look at it. I, you know, put it into MetaMask. I'm like, wow, this is the ugliest NFT I've ever seen. <laughs> it was like, um, you know, a bunch of lines, like red and green and white lines didn't really make any sense to me. I'm like, what is this? Not, it was like, it was not, I appreciated the gesture and it was, an, it was a great t-shirt. Um, but I thought it was total, like a totally weird NFT. And so I forgot about it. Actually, I put it on my fridge. Um, and then a year later, I got a DM from Dan at OpenSea. He's like, Nick, the floor price on this thing is like eight ETH. I'm like, what, what do you mean? He's like the NFT I sent you, like you need, you need to sell that. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, and I go back on OpenSea and like, sure enough, my like ugly NFT is like, I think it was a color glyph and, and it was trading. These things are trading like eight to 10 ETH <laughs> and you know, it was like 25 grand. And, uh, and so I like listed it and, you know, then, uh, I saw that, um, someone on OpenSea with the name Von Miller bought it. I'm like, well, that's obviously not Von Miller from the Broncos. And I'm like, you know, I'm a fan of Von Miller, like great player. I'm like, there's no way he's speculating on NFTs. And then under his own name, under his own name, <laughs> yeah, his account yeah. on OpenSea, yeah. tagging his own name. Yeah. <laughs> the next day, my friend sends me an Instagram post from the Von Miller where he's bragging about the NFTs that he bought. <laughs> and yours is in and there. And he, mine is the fifth one. <laughs> and he's proud of this NFT. And like, I've immensely conflicted feelings about this. Cause if I hadn't, cause now the floor price on these things is like three times higher. It's like very material. It's like 20 ETH now because wow. Vaughn bought it and everyone's like, okay, I gotta get my hands on one of these. So I basically should not have sold it to him. I should have just sat on my freaking NFT. Um, but yeah, I do have the honor of having sold an NFT to Von Miller. Every startup that's ever sent me a t-shirt and didn't send me a NFT that's now worth $75,000 or whatever it is, uh, we're going to have a conversation now. <laughs> yeah, this is officially my favorite ever. <laughs> no question. I should have worn it today. How, 
how sustainable is all this, right? So we see the crypto punks. It seems like that's like entered into this like social status game that people are playing. Uh, no different than why somebody buys an expensive car or a watch or, or whatever. Um, the ether rocks somehow now have like entered that realm as well. Do you buy the argument that like it's literally just people trying to prove who's cooler, who's richer, who's whatever? Uh, or is there some other fundamental value? Like how do you evaluate all this? I mean, people have always played these status games and there's always someone out there that thinks the objects of status are tacky, you know, mm -hmm. like um, we might think uh, Lamborghinis are tacky. Um, I certainly wouldn't buy one. Um, so there's always and in crypto, you know, like the crypto culture is very idiosyncratic and like pretty unique. So I can understand why outsiders find these status objects in the crypto space tacky. But you can't argue with the fact that. CryptoPunks, other NFTs have crossed the chasm in terms of being objects of status. Other like mainstream celebrities, Odell Beckham, I think, has one. Uh, did Jay Z? Jay Z like, changed his uh, profile set. picture. And so, it, what it is is this, like, you know, like gold is recognizable because of its physical properties. You know, it's a, so that's why people wear gold jewelry to demonstrate wealth and status. That was the OG version of this. A CryptoPunk, if you know, if you include it in your AVI on Twitter. You're demonstrating status in a, in a way that's relatively easy to prove. I mean, of course, you could fake it, but people would sort of figure out that you didn't actually own a crypto punk if you, you know. If there's one industry where they're going to figure it out, it's crypto. Yeah, like someone's going to be the detective and figure it out. So, and also, you can wear fake jewelry too. You know, so that, you know other other instruments of status are not, um, you know, like they can be compromised too. So. Um, there's no question now that um, owning digital artifacts and using it as a way to prove wealth and status is here to stay. No question. I don't know what the you know next exciting vintage is going to be, uh, but uh, some of these things probably look like they're staying power. Would you guys ever invest in those types of assets? Forget which one, but like, do you see that as an investment opportunity from a fund that is focused on investing in the industry, or is it? too speculative and you're more focused on like the public blockchains financial infrastructure. I don't know if I have an edge there. I mean, I can, in fact, I can assure you, I do not. Have an edge. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, man, you were selling to Fawn Miller. <laughs> that's my one trade. Maybe we're going to keep it a one trade all time. Um, but yeah, w if we were collectibles focused funders, which those totally do exist. And I know funds that are bespoke NFT trading funds. I'm sure they've done well. Uh, we would, but you know, we have a mandate and uh, that's what we do. All right, last question I want to ask you, and then these guys probably have questions, is uh, Axie Affinity, is this like play to earn things, $2 billion people are asking in the uh, comments in terms of, um, how do you think about play to earn? Is this new? Is it just a new variation with digital technologies? Is that something that you all are looking at as like a sector? Do you have opinions on Axie Affinity itself? Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't invested directly in uh, block. Well, actually, we have invested uh, in, in uh, blockchain, like collectible card trading games, things like that. We've also done some analytics, uh, an analytics platform, but um, we haven't really done anything like an Axie Infinity. I think what you want to do is interrogate where the cash flows are coming from. So, um, you know, the earning, like who are you being paid by? Where is that cash flow? What's the origin of that cash flow? And as far as I understand it in Axie, it seems to be folks that are buying the tokens in order to participate in the system. So, you know, this isn't me trashing it, but it looks somewhat circular in many ways. Uh, and so, you know, the reflexivity is good on the way up, and but it's also, you know, devastating on the way down. Uh, so I would just try and audit 
you know, where the injection of capital into the system is coming and does it require the continuous entrant of new players for those cash flows to work? I think people are modeling them maybe as if permanent growth is possible, but of course it's not in a finite world. Uh, so that's the question that I would sort of like pose of that system. When you evaluate a system like that, what would classify as healthy origin of cash flow versus like non-healthy? Healthy would be a situation where users are just organically paying, um, you know, injecting capital in the system in a sustainable way, like, uh, you know, to buy skins or to buy, you know, pay to win is like the most common mobile model. Uh, unhealthy would be this requires continuous growth for the cash flows to actually be stable. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't necessarily know enough about Axie to, you know, answer that question. Yeah, it. it um it's one of these things too, where I think uh, that one specifically seems to have struck a chord. And I got to call out the bias of uh, the Delphi Digital guys were trying to get me to go, and you know they were found at like a penny or whatever, right? And they were uh, incredibly uh, right about the future economic appreciation of it. And then they told me again at like a dollar, and then again at like five dollars. And now it's you know whatever seventy eighty bucks, whatever it is. And uh, the whole time I was just asking myself. Yes, you can keep earning, which I understand, but like there's like this social component to it. And with social, not from like a you and I are going to communicate in the game, but there's like social implications. So, like, one side of that conversation is like, this is amazing. People who might have been driving it for Uber or actually just didn't have money and were poor, et cetera, in some of these developing nations can now, with an internet connection, create economic, you know, uh, kind of prosperity for themselves or security and all that. That's the positive side. The negative side is like, does that mean they're now like addicted to like they have to play every day all day long, right? And they can't have like another life. I, I don't know where it settles out, but it just feels like everyone is focused on like the economic side. And like we get in this weird, like, are we gonna get to ready player one? Is that like where we go? I mean, there's like kind of weird vibes around the um scholar system. Is that what it's called in Axie, where you buy the assets and then you lease them out to uh, people typically in the developing world to play the game. And, you know, to me, that seems like kind of like a sharecropper style relationship. Um, and so I'm waiting for the hit pieces to drop in the media about it. I haven't seen any, but it's very fertile ground for uh, people to accuse crypto of being neo-colonial, um, you know, so... Uh, maybe now that I've said it, someone's going to write course. that. Of course. And they're going to quote you as uh, well. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Carter said. <laughs> On the best business. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What questions do you two guys got? Mine would just be around uh, regulatory stuff, right? So we've seen as the market for digital assets and Bitcoin specifically has continued to grow, uh, it's obvious that it's becoming more on the radar of politicians, whether it's Elizabeth Warren, Ted Cruz now on one on another side and all these other people. Is this just like uh, kind of the 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 price you have to pay for playing the game of getting bigger and growing and all this stuff and how do you see that trending over time like does it become more of a of a topic not just in the infrastructure bill but all these other kind of facets yeah i'm concerned about it um i'm worried really that uh bitcoin and crypto generally will become a partisan issue we've already seen the origins of that i mean if you just tally up the senators and representatives that are overtly pro bitcoin and the ones that are against bitcoin you're seeing party lines develop and that's not strictly good. I mean, I want to be part of the biggest possible tent. I don't want to appeal to just 40% of America. Um, and it would be a big shame if it got, you know, highly politicized. Um, you know, Bitcoin itself is a neutral, apolitical system, 
But of course, in its collision with the world, uh, different uh, political camps will have different reactions to it. Um, I mean, I, I like that we kind of showed some of our muscle as this bill came through the Senate and the House, even though we lost in the end. It looks like we're going to lose. Uh, there will be other opportunities to change the language regarding brokers and things like that. But yeah, I'm, I'm concerned. I don't know exactly how to alleviate the partisan lens that is falling over the industry. And are you surprised? Because like, so from my standpoint, uh, Elizabeth Warren was one that was outspoken kind of against it and said some super coders and all this kind of stuff, right? So to me, she's a person that would, uh, I would assume would believe in kind of the in, uh, innovation and the technology. Did it surprise you a little bit that these party lines started to draw in the sides that people took? Honestly, uh, not so much. So I, I wrote an editorial today uh, in Coindesk uh, talking about the OnlyFans ban uh, or the uh, proposed OnlyFans shift in direction, which they later reversed. And I was making the point that it traces back to this program called Operation Choke Point, whereby the government effectively instructed banks to deplatform certain uh, genres of commercial activity. Um, sex workers was one, and that's why they've had such a hard time with payment processing historically. Uh, and a lot of it was stuff like, you know, firearms sales and gun manufacturing, things like that. So there is a school of thought out there. And, you know, this is present in Congress, in Treasury, that government should politicize payment rails so that they can promote policy through banks. And so Warren's uh, view, as far as I can understand it, has to do with increasing you know pursuing a progressive agenda through you know through payment rails through banks and bitcoin is anathema to that right so even if she's nominally against you know concentrated power and banking things like that she's for state oversight into what kind of transactions you can make and you know that's i think very deeply unfortunate uh but that means i think it's very unlikely we'd ever you know get her on our side gotcha John, what do you think with that? Yeah, so I'm going to ask you about Castle Island Ventures. Um, can you just talk about, I know you just did your second fundraise, I think, this year. Uh, can you just talk about what the process of fundraising was, what companies you've looked at, and like how you kind of look at vetting them? Yeah, I mean, uh, fundraising is, uh, and, uh, you know, Anthony, you'll know this. I mean, it's very regime context dependent. Like, um, in the good times, it's the easiest thing in the world. And then in the bad times, which there are plenty of, it's like the absolute worst, most draining, impossible task. Um, and because our industry fluctuates so much, it's hard to time a fundraise such that, you know, it's hard to like nail the timing. Like you're always going to be going through some sort of awful six months where you can't raise. And then you have an amazing three months where it's the easiest thing ever. Um, and we're so, begging you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know how it is. So. Um, we were, you know, lucky, I guess, with the timing, you know, it worked out. We raised our second fund, $50 million fund, um, closed it earlier this year. Uh, our, our investment thesis is largely the same, I would say. Um, in terms of evaluating startups, a lot of it has to do with uh, founder market fit. You know, does the founder's experience, um, you know, pertain to the market or the protocol? You know, you say founder protocol fit even. Uh, does it pertain to, you know, the opportunity there? Uh, you know, pursuing, uh, we value crypto nativeness very highly, uh, of course, you know, just because there's something about, uh, you know, crypto natives that really matters uh, in this industry. Um, you know, team is like probably the biggest consideration for us, but then of course, like, you know, market sizing. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say we're like maybe more valuation sensitive than your, your typical crypto firm, which 
I guess um, I've regretted that in a lot of contexts where we should have overpaid um, for a startup, but um, you know we've kind of stuck to our guns a lot of the time, um, and um, you know we've tried to be reasonably uh, sensitive to valuation. So that's maybe what uh, sets us apart from some other funds. Yeah, it's interesting to see people's like different um, different thought processes about like different startups, and it sounds like you go mainly after the founders and the team and uh, what market they're going after. Yeah, and, and you know we have like the when we started, there weren't actually that many uh, equity-focused venture funds in the crypto space. There are a lot of token-focused ones, and we decided we understand equity best from a governance perspective, and um, the, it was underdeployed. And then also we felt that um, a fund bridging traditional financial systems, the financial services industry, and the crypto space, that needed to exist. And uh, there's a lot of great funds that did that as part of that strategy, but that was sort of the bulk of our strategy. Uh, and so we're, you know, think about like within crypto, like we're a specialist within a specialist space already. So we're about as kind of niche as it gets. We have the FUD dice. Uh, one, can people buy these online? Uh, yeah, I think on uh, my merch shop, onthebrink.shop. So onthebrink.shop. I think we have like 200 pairs left, so. <laughs> By the way, the fact that when you moved, these came with you is exactly what uh, what I would expect from you. I brought a box, a whole know, box, of because them. you know I, I knew that not everyone had them yet. All right, you you have to do the honors. You roll the way that these work. For those that don't know, is uh, each dice die, I guess die, has on uh, the interface or, or the face of it uh, a different piece of fud. So everything from inefficient government ban NSA to unfair what else is on here quantum Satoshi returns there's some good ones helps on China <laughs> what is on the bottom here? helps China that one's obsolete yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so get, get, give, give us a roll and let's see what uh, let's see what we get here this is the fourth edition it's in Bitcoin orange well it's not quite Bitcoin orange Close. my uh, my dice manufacturers actually had some sort of snafu uh, I, with the, I love they, that you have in dice manufacturer. <laughs> in this space, you can have a meme dealer. You can have a dice manufacturer. We had supply chain issues. I don't know. If you know. <laughs> I don't know if you heard about those yet. But yeah, they, we had the exact right shade of orange, and then they're like, "Sorry, we can't. We we tried, and the batch failed. Like, like how a dice batch fails, I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, if it's not the quite the right orange, please don't hold it against me. Um, let's roll. Oh, that's my fun's logo. That is <laughs> uh, oh, quantum. That's my that's one of my favorite FUDs. All right. What, what is the FUD around quantum? The quantum FUD is that uh, quantum computing will just destroy Bitcoin mm -hmm. because elliptical curve, digital signature algorithm, or I guess we Schnorr signatures now, uh, will be broken mm -hmm. by uh, quantum computing. And uh, everyone's funds will be, you know, freely, uh, you know, thievable, I guess. Um, and that's the FUD. There's two pieces to this, I think. One, is there a true quantum computer yet? Not to the level that would be required to break ECDSA. Okay. So, but in theory, we have quantum computers that have accomplished some very limited tasks. Okay. And then the second thing would be if somebody did have the computational power and complexity to break it, would that destroy the value of Bitcoin? 
like if I broke the Bitcoin algorithm and then just took all the Bitcoin, isn't it unvaluable? So I basically just took something that, that has no value? Yeah, I think it's um, the quantum FUD involves this classic reasoning mistake where you, um, you, you confuse the um, structure of Bitcoin for the substance of Bitcoin, basically. Uh, and so the theory is that if you break uh, or render inoperable a feature of the system, the system itself dies. But that's not true. What Bitcoin is really is a list of who owns what or what addresses can unencumber or you know, do valid spends. That list can obviously survive anything because and, and it can survive a change in the signature algorithm. So if ECDSA fails, you know, we're swapping it out already with Schnorr. Um, if all of these signature algorithms fail, um, we have a technical challenge ahead of us, but the Bitcoin blockchain does not disappear. Mm -hmm. um, there, I've seen proposals for moving to quantum resistant signatures, which do exist. They're just space inefficient. So it's a, you know, there's an engineering challenge there. Um, but there's also uh, SHA-256, I believe, is not quantum vulnerable. Um, so um, uh, it, it actually, there's an interesting debate about the fraction of Bitcoins that are quantum seizable. Um, the early address formats did not involve hashing the address. Later address formats do. So um, hashed addresses are less or not quantum vulnerable as far as I understand it. That's kind of like a detail that doesn't matter. Really, what I've understood from talking to cryptographers is we're probably decades off from you know, quantum computing threatening Bitcoin. Uh, second of all, quantum breaks are gradual, not sudden. So we will have plenty of forewarning. And then third of all, you know, there are signature algorithms we could use uh, if it came to that. It just feels like this is like such like a lazy intellectual argument because majority of people can't articulate what you're articulating in terms of the technical architecture. They're just like, oh, I heard quantum computers are really complex and uh, powerful. And of course, they're just going to break it. Well, it, it's just that, you know, we're not really that good at predicting technological progress in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, like tech predictions 20 years out tend to be wrong. So should we abandon technology that works today based on a theoretical future technology that sort of invalidates this technology? I don't think so. Yeah. You know, let's use what works now. John, you get a roll next. Let's go. We're all going to roll one time. Then we're going to finish up. That was a horrible roll. Uh, <laughs> yeah. See, we got energy waste. Energy. <laughs> the classic. Yeah. The classic. Um, yeah. Bitcoin uh, waste energy. That's the critique. The, <laughs> the best say? energy statistic that I found <laughs> I this it. year was that uh, Elizabeth Warren was saying uh, Bitcoin energy usage is more than some countries, right? And a couple of people saying that. Okay, That's great. true. true. Yeah. Okay, fine. Uh, so I went and I looked at what else is more than some countries and Christmas lights. And so I said, we should cancel Christmas because Christmas lights consume more energy in the United States than some countries consume all year long. There's a war on Christmas. <laughs> all, all of a sudden, it didn't matter as much. <laughs> all of a sudden, that was not a great like, whoa, critique, whoa, whoa. right? There's, so, there's so many industries you can find. Uh, I believe the industry for the extraction of zinc actually accounts for more energy than Bitcoin. Um, but I've never heard anyone complain about that. <laughs> Maybe because zinc is useful in sunscreen or whatever. Uh, <laughs> 
I'm not a big fan of sunscreen, but we can leave that aside. Well, you better get used to it here in Miami. Miami. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care how tan you are. You got to make sure you got some sunscreen. Do you think that uh, when people bring this up, is it better to attack the argument or or, or I guess defend, debate, whatever, uh, from a, no, it's actually not that bad from an energy consumption standpoint, or is it, that's not really worth the conversation. It's more so the energy usage is uh, for a positive impact or like a, a good reason, right? Like yeah. every, people feel like they got to punch back at the energy consumption amount, but it almost feels like the better argument is like zinc is useful. Therefore, people consume power to do it. Bitcoin is useful. Therefore, it's going to consume power. Correct. Absolutely spot on. So there's a lot of clarifying to do around the nature of the energy grid, which is a th- concept that most people do not understand. And I would say having looked into it now for a long time, it's probably you know, on a par with or deeper than Bitcoin in terms of its complexity. So you are our energy grid expert, by the way. Well, well, (laughs) like not really, I'd say, you know, like I think you need a PhD to like truly understand it. But the more I dig into it, the more complex it is. So the notion of stranded or wasted energy or transmission losses, people just aren't aware of this. And so because they lack, you know, some of that basic knowledge, they're not really very well situated to you know, understand Bitcoin's energy consumption, which is very unique and very idiosyncratic, right? So there's a factual side of the debate, which is important. But as you say, the most important thing to do is just remind people of the utility of Bitcoin, because no one complains about the aluminum extraction industry or, um, you know, steel. Like, you know, they understand that it's used to build skyscrapers. No one complains about AC, which is used far, far, far more energy than Bitcoin. Um, or even, you know, tumble dryers and washing machines, modern conveniences. Everyone benefits from these things. No mm-hmm. one complains about them. With Bitcoin, not everyone benefits from it, um, especially not Westerners, you know, that sort of lack an appreciation for why you would want a system like this. Why do you want an independent system of property rights outside the state, outside the banking system? Uh, and so, you know, it kind of goes to the, like, the globe that you have behind you. Um, if you look globally where Bitcoin is most adopted on a per capita basis, it's not the US. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, Chainalysis had good data on this. They just came out last week. It's um, on a per capita basis. It's Vietnam, India, Pakistan, Nigeria, Kenya, Venezuela, Colombia, Ghana, um, you know, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia, Latin America, those are actually the most popular places. Um, people aren't aware of this, but you know, we're looking at 150 million people worldwide that are sort of crypto users now. Um, that is a very different perspective than you know, elite Westerners that are elites, that um, are the main voices in the energy debate. And if anything, it's kind of like this sort of like, you know, like very Anglo-centric perspective to say, well, who needs a sound money system uh, when we have the dollar, right? Well, Mm -hmm. you know, over a billion people worldwide live um, in, I think Alex Gladstein says this, live in 20 uh, double digit inflation, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And, you know, most people worldwide do not have access to functioning capital markets for savings, that's for sure. Um, and you know, m- you know, m- many, many hundreds of millions of people worldwide do not have access to functional banking systems. So it's about communicating the global nature of this and what people are using it for. That is the energy debate. Is actually it's a utility debate. Mm-hmm. 
it, it's crazy to me that uh, so many people have the privilege, right? Gladstein's been all over this. I think you and, and a number of other people, but it really is just the system that we have works good enough. And we were talking earlier about like mobile banking in African countries, leapfrogged the US, definitely in Asia, they leapfrogged us. And it was just because we kind of had this legacy technology. And so you're almost better off coming at it from scratch because you're able to understand one, why is it powerful, but two, that is your entry into the financial services. And so again, I just always go back to like, uh, Elizabeth Warren's probably the perfect example. Last decade, two decades, she spent like railing on Wall Street about accountability and transparency. And then like a system comes along that literally every single transaction is on a public ledger and she's, you know, yelling and screaming about it. And it's like, I, I understand why, and, and you know, it, it's a rational position for her to take and other politicians, but it does feel a little bit like, hey, this is the system that you always wanted. It, it just is uh, not wrapped in the kind of box that you would expect it to come from. Yeah. I mean, if you designed the financial system from scratch today, would it look anything like the financial system we have? Of course not. Yeah. Joe, my turn. Let's go. <laughs> inflexible. Oh, inflexible is a good one. So this Let's go. Is <laughs> <laughs> nice roll. Yeah. Good roll. Good roll. As if Joe wrote the die. <laughs> right. I rolled it. Uh, yeah, I guess I can't congratulate myself on writing. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. So this is one that economists like to say. So um, if you compare Bitcoin and gold, when the price of gold goes up a lot. Um, the supply of gold, the rate of increase of supply of gold goes up. A new mines come online. Yep. I promise we'll get to the point here. Um, and you know they produce more gold. And so there's a supply response which attenuates the price impact. And it's the same on the downside when the price of gold goes down a lot. Um, there's less gold mined, and so the downside volatility is less. Now Bitcoin is perfectly inelastic from a supply perspective. The supply doesn't care what the price is, ever at all. And a lot of economists say, well, that's actually kind of a nice feature that gold has, where um, you have this supply response that actually smooths out the volatility a little bit. With Bitcoin, all demand changes are expressed purely in price. You know, you know, with, of course, the exception of the halvings, we can debate the importance of those um, maybe on another episode. <laughs> but so that's Nick, the critique. Nick thinks the halving wasn't priced then. The, <laughs> <laughs> we we go can ahead, do a go whole ahead. second episode on that. Um, so this is like an educated, this is a critique you might hear from like an economist. The, like uh, a, a smart economist that doesn't just dismiss Bitcoin entirely. Like a Steve Hank uh, or whatever. Well, he's, uh, I don't know if he goes to that level of sophistication with his critique. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually the only thing that uh, Nick and I have ever disagreed on is having priced in or not. That's probably it. Yeah. Right? I, we're like, still at odds on that. Yeah. Um, All right. Let, let's, uh, rather than me roll, we, let's do three minutes. What, what is your argument for why it is priced in? Um, just that uh, market participants are generally aware of the supply schedule, and you know that information should, in theory, be expressed in the price. So that's that's my view. So I agree that that is theoretically what should happen. Bitcoin specifically is unique in that one. It's not like a, like if a stock right was to say, "Hey, in two weeks we're going to issue these shares." people would have to learn about it, have to internalize what that meant, and then act in that two-week period, right? So it, they kind of don't have like a, I know how many blocks until the next having today, right? So I've got four years to kind of prepare, three years, whatever. 
Uh, so that is a positive for the argument of it being priced in. Where I disagree is that I actually don't think 50% of people who hold Bitcoin could describe to you how the halving works. That's fair. That's fair. So there is an argument to be made regarding the sophistication of investors or if you're a sort of marginal investor. My response would be what actually matters is not your average investor, but the price setting invest, you know, the enemies the larger that set holders. the price. And so your opinion in the market is weighted by, uh, you know, by the amount of capital you have. You know, the market cares about your opinion to the extent that you're a large um, market participant. Uh, and so, you know, I would probably discount the expertise or lack thereof of like the smallest holders. So the other thing that I think about a lot is, and I'm putting in the uh, chat right now for everyone who's listening, uh, the on the brink dot shop where you can go get the dice. Yeah, uh, he's going to run out in a second. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the other thing I think about is when the having occurs, there's more media attention, obviously, as more media attention. Some people say, hey, I should go buy Bitcoin, whatever. And the additional user who joins heard about Bitcoin recently, probably doesn't understand it, and it is bringing additional demand that previously wasn't priced into the market all around that event. And so naturally, you just can't have it priced in. I think the argument would be, if people have seen it three, four times, and they know that that's gonna happen, then I guess they could price in that way. But it just feels like there's too many, it's too complex for it to be fully priced in. And I think if you zoom out, it's just like, well, 18 months later, the price is way higher. So is it always something other than the having, or is it, have some impact, right? Or And would you argue that maybe that is the pricing in? Yeah, so, so like my view is that like Bitcoin is generally a function of, the price is a function of demand side mm -hmm. characteristics as opposed to supply side. And the demand is a function of popular adoption. So it could be that we're basically describing the same thing, mm -hmm. but with different language, um, where, you know, the world gradually discovers the utility of Bitcoin. And as they discover it, they adopt it. And one of the things that is the utility is the supply schedule. Yeah. Uh, and so that could be one way to sort of harmonize our views. I will say that uh, there's not many things in Bitcoin that can be said by two people who are both pro-Bitcoin that could create massive uh, bifurcation of the community. If you were to tweet the having was not, or the having was priced in, and I tweet the having was not priced in, we'll both have both sides screaming at us that we're right and wrong. And so it just feels like one of those topics where it's impossible to prove or disprove, but uh, people have really strong opinions about it. I think in theory you should be able to assess the, ver the veracity of, of the claim uh, from just by looking at the data uh, and, and treating it like a um, you know, natural experiment, looking at a bunch of halvings on a different coins. I don't know if anyone's done that analysis, um, but you could uh, do an event study probably on so, other blockchains. Yeah. Yeah. I, but other, you know, I guess, you know, some people would say it doesn't hold on other blockchains, it's a Bitcoin specific thing. So then it's more difficult because then we only have like three data points. I will say one thing about the Bitcoin community. It has forced me to be a much, much, much clearer thinker because basically when you know that you're going to say something, the first thing I think of now is, okay, what are all the ways that some, you know, idiot on the internet is going to come and attack me? And the idiot could be pro-Bitcoin or not pro-Bitcoin, but like there's always the reply guy, there's always whatever. And it does in some weird way force you to think more clearly and kind of more thoroughly before you say stuff. Yeah, I mean, my best critics for my writing are like anonymous accounts on Twitter. And so <laughs> I think about them when I write, like, am I going to enrage them? 
Jo- Joe and John run two of them, and uh, they're actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's lately. I'm laughing because I'm on on the brink on the brink dot shop, and he has a mug that says the price the having was priced in. <laughs> 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 so you can go, you can buy while that supplies last. Oh, while supplies last. While supplies yeah. last. last. The having was priced in. That's my favorite mug. Yeah. That is that is pretty good. <laughs> I like the wizard. Are we gonna get in a? Are we gonna get in a dueling? Uh, a dueling? Uh, e-commerce shop do we need a mug I mean, that says the having was priced in you're giving us a lot of free promotion maybe I get, i'll have you on my show and then we'll do your e-commerce shop this this is not uh in the store though uh it's not so we we're probably gonna add it maybe depends if you guys like it you're my alpha testers uh, yeah we like it uh yeah. but you know it's my three favorite things bitcoin usa and camo <laughs> uh, so what a pitch put them all together all right I like it. it's cool Everyone, we appreciate you guys tuning in today. Uh, where can we send people to find you on the internet? Twitter, number one place, Nick underscore underscore Carter. That's two underscores. <laughs> <laughs>